Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. People always say shit like, I'm going to pray for you. You're going to pray for me, so you're going to sit in your apartment and do nothing? Because that's what your prayers are. You sitting around and not taking action as I struggle with the situation. Don't pray for me. Make me a sandwich or something. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, last night the Boston Celtics came back from down 15 late in the third quarter to win by 12 points against the heavily favored, like, dynastic Golden State Warriors. Can we just talk about that fourth quarter for this episode? <laughs> like the whole episode? <laughs> yeah, That's just what people the whole, tune in. Yeah, tune exactly. In. <laughs> I just want to break it down. The 17-0 run at the end. Well, oh. you, you, you know... I think you have punditry, sports punditry in you. We can break mm-hmm. it down. You're you're sort of like the Skip Bayless of uh, academic podcasting. <laughs> I called that game. I predicted that we would win because nobody thought that we was we were going to win that game, including Golden State. And I think they didn't take us seriously. They were like, "Oh, we're so cute. Look, we're just, they're such a young team. It's like us back in 2015." Yep, Golden State got caught slipping. This is, mm-hmm. uh, as, as I told Tamla, this mm-hmm. is very painful for me because I I both historically dislike the Boston Celtics because I grew up a Laker fan and dislike the Golden State Warriors because they're from Northern California, but also they're just a bit too smug for my taste. Like, I feel like they were a humble team the first year they won, and I yeah. really was like, okay, maybe I can root for them. And now, wipe that smile off your face. And so for the first time in my entire life, I was rooting for Boston in a game. Yeah. And I knew, because you didn't say you were going to root for them, but I bet I, I had a feeling you would find yourself rooting <laughs> for them. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you just all of a sudden, hey, look, I'm, I'm rooting for the Celtics. What? Well, how fucked up is life that I'm rooting for the Celtics? <laughs> it's so fucked up. Like, this world is upside down. First COVID and then school shootings and then, and now then you're this. rooting for the Celtics. <laughs> I'm rooting for the Celtics. Um, no, but like, they're a, a team of just clearly... Maybe in my mind, I have a heuristic of teams that play good defense mm-hmm. equal like uh, unselfish, uh, teamworky. Like that, playing good defense requires a, a sort of uh, trust, work ethic, and trust in your teammates uh, mm-hmm. more than just playing offense and, and launching three pointers and then shimmying and then shimmying. Yeah, it's just dumb. And then who can? Root against Al Horford. The, I know. The, as a proud Latino man, I have to be on his side. <laughs> Big Al turned 36 today. Happy birthday, Al. You have made anyone who grew up in Boston so happy over the last... Um, <sighs> but that's not as much as I would like to 
<laughs> what we were going to talk about. In fact, I'm happy we got in as much as we did. I have to edit this out. People have already tuned out. Fuck these guys. What sport are they even talking about? It's the NBA Finals, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it's the NBA Finals, basketball, uh, or as they say in Europe, I don't know, basketball? Basketball. Basketball. That's good, yeah. Uh, Speaking of bad Russian, or actually, you're good at accents. I'm not even going to pretend that you're bad at them, but... uh, Of Russians, just speaking of Russians. Just speaking of Russians, how about that? Um, We're going to be talking about a very famous short story or novella, The Death of Ivan Ilyich. Ilyich? Ivan Ilyich? Yeah, I guess so. Sometimes it's spelled Illich and sometimes it's spelled Illich, but I take that that's, yeah. I'm excited for that. It is. I was trying to compose a tweet of like just saying, you know, coming next week, like I do sometimes. How would you like describe what the themes of of it are? Because they are the most fundamental like themes that humanity faces, it, it feels like. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't know. A man comes to terms with death and the meaning of his life. Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> it's so it hits every it, it it just hits every one of my uh, like deepest interests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was one. I was worried about you actually because I was just like, this is staring death, the black hole, just right in the face with and and it's just kind of relentless. Just relentless. the momentum of it tor- towards that you know, that moment, even though you already know it's going to happen, but it's like, I was like, is Dave going to be able to handle this? Dude, well, we'll, we'll talk about it when we get to that segment, because I, you were right to worry. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Okay. Yeah, man. Uh, well, we'll see. But Hopefully. I love it. I mean, all I could say is I love it. So it's, it wasn't that bad. Um, yeah. Right. Um, but first Tamler, something close to death, something almost as important as the fundamental meaning of all uh, life and existence and authenticity uh, yep. is this growing genre yes of tweets I, essays uh, takes on on academia ac- on academia on leaving academia it seems as if everybody i'm surprised there are any professors left to be honest given how much like <laughs> given how like social media yeah it really is a genre that didn't exist before of essay or blog post often uh, why i'm leaving academia and as far as I can tell, it doesn't exist in other professions to the same degree, but maybe that's just because I don't follow them. Like, is this... Uh, just, hold on, I'm yeah. real-time Googling why I am leaving beekeeping. <laughs> <laughs> why Nothing. so many new beekeepers quit? I found something. <laughs> Mostly it's about bees leaving the hive. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't know. Maybe there is just like a... I mean, for one, academics are skilled at writing, or, you know. Or, yeah, or I don't know what pra- academics practiced <laughs> You're right. They yeah. they write a lot. Yeah. So so you and I have um, talked about some of these uh, tweets, and we've been sort of disparaging about the approach, the whole approach, that in particular the negativity with which um, academia is portrayed. But I don't know if you were thinking along these lines. I wanted to be a bit more fair and try to really see what's going on. Um, yeah, and so you you put a couple of articles uh, in our Slack to discuss. Yeah, um, I one thing I <clears throat> I've always thought about this: if you're going to write a "Why I Am Leaving Academia" blog post, you should be like legally obligated to write a 
eight years doing. later update you know <laughs> like right how, and you actually that that's that's one of the the uh articles yeah. that you posted actually somebody did this was, mm-hmm. and, uh, in a post titled i regret re- regret i regret quitting astrophysics and yeah. i think that's quite enlightening i would really love to see that um, yep i agree and i'm not even saying that in a snide way like i think that i think some people might feel like you know things have been going great and I, 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 you know, I haven't looked back since and other people will be like this person. And, um, but we always seem to get it, you know, the, at, at the low point of this person's experience yeah. in academia. So I, I, here, here's a question to maybe get us started. If you had to guess what the real situation is, right between uh, so here are three options number one this really is an unprecedented bad time to be in academia relative to other professions because the job market is brutal these bloated administrations are just looking for ways to exploit um, academics and you know you see in covid how they behaved they were at least according to some people in the profession i'm not among them they were careless with our health and our lives trying to get us back into the classroom um, so that's number one uh, alternative number two it's a little worse than normal because of covid and the job market but it's not dramatic it's kind of like the ups and downs of academic life and if you're talented and you work hard there's still you know there's still hope for you um and then the third one is yeah it's hard all jobs are hired now right most jobs in this stage of capitalism whatever stage we're in are are rough but the people who go into academia this generation i don't know 24 to 35 somewhere in that range are just kind of breathtakingly entitled. <laughs> you're <laughs> like, blaming it on the Zoomers. The Zoomers are finally on the market. That's I see what you're doing. There. Is this even the Zoomers? Like, I feel like the Zoomers are a little younger. Yeah, no, and, yeah, the Millennials. Yeah, yeah, the, it's somewhere the, between the, Zoomers and Millennials. If yeah. it's if it's there, because I know that 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 those people get uh, shit on sometime that generation. So this is a serious question. Like, which of those three do you think is closest to capturing? the reality. Okay. So I know you asked me a three-part question. So, I, so I'll try to answer it straightforwardly and then add my nuance. I think that it is the, the second option that this is much like every other work set of working conditions. Academia has not um, been miraculously protected from anything. So, um, so, you know, that we have not gotten raises. Did you guys get raises? Like for these past couple of years, like we just got, I think, a cost of living raise that didn't even, it didn't even beat inflation. So. Oh yeah. I mean, we don't even get that normally. What we get are big raises with the promotions, like really big, uh, yeah. like substantial ones. And then we just get kind of little raises that they're not yeah. substantial, certainly not uh, coming close to inflation this year. Your big raises are your promotions, and everything after that is is, is yeah. much much smaller, and you know based on merit. But you know, well, and what sucks that many people point out is that one of the easiest ways, if not the only way, in some universities to get a raise is to go on the job market and get an a, an offer from another institution, and that it may be something that is commonly done in other in in other industries, but it's it's easier to do another. Like it, it's a huge deal to go on the job market in academics. There are not that many universities that are hiring, and everybody would find out. It's not like 
getting you don't get emails from headhunters every other week like you do if you're working a real job. So so um, so there are reasons why I think it's harder. Um, but that's been going on like my first job was like that you know like that's been going on forever uh you to to get anything substantial you had to get an outside offer and the problem was as my first job learned is that if you get an outside offer you might take it you're likely to take it because you see yourself there and you're and you're already so pissed off at your your current institution for treating you like total shit you know i'm not a big fan of that strategy but i mean i remember the dean flat out told me he's like we think a lot of people here are not as coveted as they th- seem to think. And <laughs> yeah. so this yeah. is our way of gauging that. It's a reasonable, know? It's. I think it's a rational strategy for an institution. It, you know, yeah. it's just not, it, it has its problems. But so, by the way, I checked the youngest millennials are 25. So this is all a millennial. But I apologize okay. to the Zoomers. I apologize to our huge yeah. Zoomer audience, uh, which <laughs> yeah. is... Um, <laughs> we've we, we, we've uh, given Zoomers a lot more love than I think well, yeah, yeah, many exactly. people our yeah, age. Yeah. Millennials are the, uh, the they, they're the problem. Yeah. <laughs> Millennials they and are, boomers. They're probably most of our audience. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think that there are two related things that give that that add nuance to this. One is uh, I think as you and I have talked about the experience of being an academic is not universal at all. So it's not homogenous. There's so it ranges from really, really crappy adjunct positions where, you know, there are people who have to teach whatever class they can get in three different local colleges just to make ends meet. And even then they're making like $38,000 a year and, and have no job security. And that's terrible. So the, the experience that I, that I and you have had is, we're obviously looking at this from the the most positive uh, you know yeah no like we hit the lottery as some people will say yeah Um, so so that's why it makes me mad when people who have jobs like us chime in on twitter and and bitch about it because i'm like "Eh." everything horrible that people say about like the way universities treat adjuncts i think is is relatively right but when they quit, I don't see their essays. The people that, like, in the three things that we looked at for this, they are usually tenure track or commonly in that kind of postdoc limbo, yeah. where you know. But they're but they but they're not teaching five courses for thirty thousand dollars or something right. like that, right. you know. And so I think that what's changed over time that might make this point be, you know, like might make it so that these people have a point is that as the number of students continued to rise, the number of people on the job market continued to rise, the number of jobs didn't. And then you have this this increased competition where before, you know, we all know professors who who um, got their jobs out of grad school because the chair of their committee called up their buddy at Princeton and said, hey, my guy's on the market. And then they just got that job and they took four years in, in grad school yeah. or something like that. That just and doesn't those, happen anymore. Right? Yeah. And those people are usually white males exactly, as the yeah. stereotype has it. Yeah, like that's yeah. true. It's actually true. And um, and so, so now you have people competing. And this started happening when I was a postdoc. It became more and more common for people in, in the social sciences like psychology to take postdocs. And then you were on the job market competing with people who had been out for two years and had more publications. And that's it's just an arms race. Like the more people who are out there, the harder and harder it is. So you have postdocs who've been doing it for five years who have 30 publications and they're still not getting jobs, which is absolutely shittier than, than it was uh, when I was on the job market. And so if you're a postdoc, 
or if you're an adjunct because you couldn't get a job, a tenure track job, then um, all yeah. like I think that it is it is a shitty uh, position to be in. Yeah, or a visiting professor that has to pack up and move every yeah, every right. one to two years. You know, it's really tough strain on the family. I mean, that is the life, you know, and I've experienced, again, on the good side of it, but not like you, where I just went from Yale, one Ivy League institution, right to another one, and everything was great. I right, went you went a, from, your, you had a break in between your Ivy League institutions. I, I, I went to my first job, which is in Morris, Minnesota, and I actually enjoyed my time there in spite of some poor salary kind of conditions. But that was not something that me and my newly born daughter and my wife right. like thought we were going to do wanted to do and you know like and and still that was a tenure track job that put me in a good position to without a, a a really burdensome teaching load and put me in a position to get to a place which is kind of perfect for our family in a lot of ways and uh you know like a lot of people just that doesn't happen you yeah. just have to keep bouncing around you have to keep getting up and moving and moving yeah. sucks it's the worst yeah. So. Yeah. Ab absolutely. Every time I do it, I'm like, never again, never yep. again. Um, by the way, I was at UC Irvine for three years. Thanks for remembering um, <laughs> between my um, as a postdoc. So, so oh, you were. I yeah. Didn't, I didn't know that actually. The question that I really want to ask, though, is suppose that you do have a tenure track job. Forget postdocs. Forget adjuncts who never got on the tenure track. This Nature article that you linked to called has the quote unquote great resignation hit academia. One, there's a law of journalism that if you ask a question in the title, it's almost always no. <laughs> the question is, are those people who are in the tenure track leaving at increased rates? And this article dances around this claim, making it seem as if they're providing some sort of evidence that that's the case, but they never do. Like they don't provide a single piece of data that this is happening at a higher rate than it ever has. Rather, they highlight, which is important too, like um, they highlight the people who have left anecdotally, right? They, they sought out these people and they asked them, why are you leaving? I just don't think that institutions used to support you or make you work less. I, like, I don't yeah. know. This is also my question. So just for the listeners, the great resignation is, is, is that like the great replacement? <laughs> I was just about to make that joke. It's not like the great replacement theory. It uh, Right when Biden and before him, Trump, a little bit, started paying people because of COVID who couldn't find work or couldn't go to work, people just started quitting their jobs even when they could go because it was like, oh, yeah, I hate my job. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and now I can afford to live. I won't die. I won't starve. I won't, I won't not be able to pay rent. Uh, if uh, because we have this unemployment money and we have these checks. And so there was a period of time where it was like workers had leverage and yeah. they used it by quitting. And then that ended, of course, like all those benefits are gone. And so now you don't hear about it as much, except now, of course, in academia. Right. So this article in Nature tries to mount this argument that this is happening also in academia and they highlight people who have left and they give their reasons. And some of them are like uh, uh, pushed out by systemic bias, right? And they highlight some people who didn't feel like they were getting supported um, because they're part of a marginalized group. I, I, I have zero problem with any of these people and I even believe them. But to make that general claim that 
to, to me require some evidence. Like these are just stories of people who left because they didn't feel supported. This is so this article bothers me by the lack of data that they have. So one, I would love to know how many people are actually leaving. Two, has that changed over time? Like actually. Three, if it has, how does that change compare to any other job that people might get at that stage of their careers, right? So like, is there any substance to this? Or are we just doing like this FUD, this fear, uncertainty, and doubt of journalism trying to like latch on to a narrative because, because people are kind of upset about life and the world right now. And so it seems like the kind of stuff that people want to hear about. Right. So the the, the, the data that they do give is on this uh, salary and satisfaction survey. Yeah, right. Uh, 37% of mid-career researchers were dissatisfied with their current position, a degree of dissatisfaction that sent them apart from both early and late career researchers. By 5%, by, by 5%, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mid-career researchers often face duties and administrative tasks that go beyond the lab. In the survey, 37% of researchers said they were unhappy with the amount of time they have for research, 21% uh, of early career, 28 of uh, late career echoed that complaint. Again, you really start to wonder if this is a generational <laughs> difference to some exactly. degree. Exactly. And know? there's no comparison over time, right? This mm -hmm. These numbers could be vastly better than they were 10 years ago when the mm -hmm. housing crisis hit or something. And yep. and also, yeah. one reading of these numbers is that 80% of, of, of early career, 83% of early career researchers are satisfied like that's a i'm it's a very yeah. different narrative there right but, if you if you surveyed like waiters or you know yeah. people in tech or people you know like again it's really hard to know but I, my feeling is again we are on the luckiest side of this spectrum all that you know like granted but my feeling is that that it's like it's it's not better in uh, on average in some of these uh, other professions that I think, you know, they imagine them themselves yeah. uh, being a part of. It really is, I think, a shoddy article because what I don't like about what it's doing is um, is that it is, I think, planting seeds of real, real insecurity in people for uh, for reasons that don't stand up to scrutiny. And again, there are a lot of reasons why you might want to leave academia, but I, this is a whole lot of nothing um, in this article. Yeah. You've been very offended by this uh, yeah, <laughs> from, the, from the start. <laughs> I also came across this, why you need to leave academia by the cheeky scientist. Yeah, um, it's like a, a blog. Uh, it's a blog post. Yeah. yeah. He says, I felt like I a complete loser. I grabbed a food stamp application and walked out of the poorly lit government assistant building. The building was in the middle of nowhere and it took me forever to find it on my bike. I made a last minute decision to apply for the stamps in between lab experiments and hurried down to the building hoping my advisor wouldn't notice that I have gone. Uh, then he starts talking about like the data, which... Uh, he says he was developing a stress-induced kidney condition. And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. 
Again, yeah. this connects perfectly to our next. <laughs> exactly. uh, yeah. After all, this is bolded, so I'm drawn to it. The whole reason <laughs> I worked so hard to become a PhD so I could create a better life for myself and my own family someday. I, I thought climbing my way to the highest echelons of academia would give me this life. I thought I would be paid well, treated well, and allowed to do meaningful work, but I was very wrong. So you'll see why we're making fun of this in a bit. Yes. But then he gives uh, all these like stats, like three times the fold increase in the number of people with graduate degrees who have had to apply for food stamps, unemployment, or other assistance. Is it true that a lot of academics are on food stamps? Do you I think? looked this up, and it's like, in the United States, it was like... One percent of all people, um, and that's including people with masters and above. Uh, Sixty-eight thousand number of postdocs in the U.S. alone waiting for tenured professorships. You are not above the data. You are the data. Don't fall into the trap of ignoring the dismal numbers telling you that academia is dying and that you better leave as soon as possible. If you're in academia right now, you are one of those numbers. The fairy tale is over. <laughs> if you want to keep doing this, fine. Just don't act surprised the next time you get scooped right before publishing or when you're reduced to publishing in a very low-tier journal. You are too smart and too talented to work in poverty your whole life. Imagine what you could do if you had all the reagents you needed and all the top-level instrumentation you needed. That's what it's like in industry. Okay, like I don't we don't need to keep giving this all this much time, but you keep reading this and it continues in this in this vein. Okay, wait a minute. Why is this guy he wants to really help me uh, get out of academia. If you get lost, confused, stuck, or feel it alone, contact us and we will help. So it turns out this guy is a consultant, a transition specialist. Yeah. You, they will help you navigate the, you know, from your just shitty academic job to something just phenomenally great <laughs> yeah. in industry. Uh, yeah. Okay. So there's... <laughs> I, you know, I've said this many times. I spent a year in Toronto working primarily in an industry job as a consultant. And yeah. I'm sorry, man. I knew at the end of that year, any temptation that might have been there to go for a higher paying industry job went away. Like I didn't like the nature of that work as full time work. Like it was yeah. high pressure. You were essentially required to be on call at all times if your boss mm -hmm. needed you to like uh, help with the presentation deck for these new potential clients. Like it was doing work that not that you had no real say over. If we're looking at sort of the equivalent lateral move from being an academic at a tenure track job to a consultancy group, the job, I'm sorry, in my humble opinion, does not get better. And in fact, it gets worse in a lot of ways. Um, I really want to let all of my students know that Industry is a viable option for being a PhD, but I think it's bullshit to try to make it sound like it's the you know, panacea, like grass is always greener. Yep. Okay. And then this brings us to the, this last uh, blog post. I regret quitting astrophysics, which I think makes really good points. So this is a guy writing that in 2013, he decided to quit his career in astrophysics, move back home and become a data scientist. He'd written a blog post back then. And so seven years later, he's updating us and he says... Seven years after the fact, it is time to confess, I deeply regret regret quitting. This post is meant to give my point of view. Many people who left academia are very happy that they did. Here I present some arguments why one might not want to leave, which I hope will be of help for people facing decisions like these. One, I miss being motivated. And that's, you can't, 
right? Like yeah. if it's not for you, you'll figure out in grad school if that's just not what you want to do. But what he misses is working on the questions that were pressing his curiosity, that were that were fundamentally intrinsically meaningful to him. And that's yeah. my experience too. Like I had to go in that year and work on stuff that other people wanted. That's what's beautiful about it is you yeah. work on the stuff that you want to work on. And if you find something to be, you know, not worthwhile, as I have come to think about certain parts of philosophy that I used to be more enthusiastic about, like, you just don't have to keep doing it anymore, yeah. you know? But that's just not true in a, like, a consulting gig like the one that you're talking about. Yeah, and I want to just, just, like, reemphasize now that, like, we've said this many times, we're at the luckiest you know, end of the distribution. But my lateral move to work at, at a consulting company was also at the very lucky end of the distribution in consultancy. Mm -hmm. Like I had a, as far as those things go, I had a great position. And, uh, the, but the trade-offs are nonetheless there. So he says he misses working in academic institutions surrounded by people who are intrinsically motivated to do. So now you're also just around other people who are excited. And, you know, I feel that this is true yeah. of the people in our department, the uh, relatively happy group that really enjoys uh, teaching and researching. And, and that's really nice, you know, to yeah. be at a place where you don't feel like you're competing with them. They're coming after your promotion, the one that you want. It's 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 not like that, and, and you don't so. have a boss. Like you don't really have a boss, you know. Right, exactly. Um, but yeah, I loved what he said. Uh, having visitors over from around the globe with interesting, perhaps related work was a big motivator. Journal clubs, coffee discussions, lunch talks, colloquiums, etc., are all part of the job. It's something that even most scientists don't always seem to fully appreciate. Yeah. He says, "I miss passion and being proud of what I do." The internet says I have the sexiest job of the 21st century, <laughs> but science. I think my previous job, uh, is that really, the, does the internet uh, really I, say that? He, he provided a link. You keep talking and I'll tell you what the link says. <laughs> Data scientist, the sexiest job yeah, of the from, 21st. Uh, yeah. What is this? HB, Harvard Business Review says. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like sounds like a data scientist wrote that. Uh, uh, I, I think so. Yeah. Objectively, they probably have like eight orgasms a day. You know, a data scientist. <laughs> that's true. But that's because they're always near at the a computer. computer. <laughs> yeah. But I think my previous job was more enjoyable to brag about at birthday parties. Your job in America, I would think we were saying this on the Ask Us Anything. It really is like more a part of your identity. In, yeah. in the States than in any other country, I think, by a fair margin. But I mean, like, I think this is the, the thing to keep in mind. And I'm really glad that somebody did this. I, yeah. you know, someone who wrote one of those posts back when, you know, and he was doing it before it was cool to do it in yeah. 2013. <laughs> right. Now he's updated it. And this is another way that it can go. Yeah. And we're all staring death in the face, you know? <laughs> Is this what you want to spend the next? One of the people in that uh, in that Nature article does say, "Is this where I wanted to die? Like this this job that I took? Is yeah. this where I want to be for the next forty years or whatever?" Uh, speaking of like having a job that's part of your identity um, and then dying, <laughs> we'll be right back to talk about the death of Ivan Ilyich. Okay, now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. You know, life can be overwhelming on all sides these days, and it's so easy to get burned out by all of it. If you feel a lack of motivation or a kind of detachment or just tired, you know, that kind of heaviness, I know I feel this sometimes, that's just like physically weighing you down. Well, that could be stressed and just being burned out by work, by the news, by everything that's going on. 
BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself, to prioritize your health. And talking with someone, an unbiased observer who's trained to help people discover the sources of their burnout and some effective ways of addressing it, well, that can make all the difference. I know so many people who have been helped by therapy in ways they never thought possible. Everyone is so much more open about it these days. We all know how important physical health can be. Now we're realizing the same is true for mental and emotional health as well. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Very Bad Wizards listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash VBW. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash VBW. Thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. This is the time of the podcast where we like to take a moment and sincerely thank all the people who get in touch with us in all the different ways that you do um, and interact with other people in the Very Bad Wizards community. Um, this is one of the things just uh, we've got a bunch of emails recently that touched my heart uh, sincerely and I just so appreciate that. We read all of them, and we don't reply to anywhere near as many as we wish <laughs> we could. Um, if you want to email us, you can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet at us, at peas for David, at Tamler for me, and at verybadwizards for both of us. You can join the lively community of cantankerous fucks on... Uh, the the Reddit page um, at uh, reddit slash r slash very bad wizards. You can follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, and please rate us on Apple Podcasts. Give us a nice five star review so, so that other people will um, be able to enjoy the podcast. Also, subscribe on Spotify because we're looking for that two hundred million dollar Joe Rogan deal. What if, would you really take it if it meant that uh, a whole bunch of our listeners could never uh, really listen to her? There probably <laughs> is a number, right? I mean, <laughs> I'm sure there is a number. I, I would, would send them like, all some if money. You don't, if you don't have Spotify, just like, e you know, email me and I'll just send you a check. Uh, exactly. <laughs> 
Uh, you know what I was going to say uh, right before getting to the more tangible ways in which you can support us is your energy came in really subdued on this. And I just want the audience to know that it's because we are recording this after having a we just finished recording existential conversation. <laughs> yes. So, but it was very heartfelt, even yeah. if it sounded subdued. So. Yes. They they would never question the authenticity. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yes, you can also support us in any number of ways. You can go to our support page um, at verybadwizards.com and see those ways there. You can give us a one-time or recurring donation on PayPal. We really appreciate it. You can buy uh, swag, mugs, uh, t-shirts, hoodies. Um, and if you want to join our lovely community of Patreon supporters, we'd really, really appreciate that as well. If you do at uh, the one dollar and up level, you always get ad free episodes and you get all of the little beat compilations that I've put together at two dollars and up. Now you get all of the bonus segments that we do. We also have uh, uh, me, Jesse, and Natalia. We're going to be back. Uh, we're recording tomorrow a bonus episode on Lost Highway, the David yeah. Lynch movie. And That's then, great. Uh, you know, we all, now every month you get also Ask Us Anything. Yes, that's what we're doing now. We we had the Ask Us Anything uh, episodes released like a month later for $2 and up, but we said fuck it why why are we even doing that so you get the audio of the ask us anything at two dollars and up at five dollars and up you get to vote on an episode topic that we do twice a year um collect suggestions from all our listeners and and have it determined by our patreon supporters you also get access at five dollars and up to uh access to our brothers karamazov um five-part series that we're very proud of. We're really into the Russians, I guess. We are, um, yeah. <laughs> you get my intro psych lecture videos, uh, some of Tamler's lecture videos on Plato's Symposium. And finally, at $10 and up, you get everything that I just mentioned, but you also get video versions of our Ask Us Anything. But most importantly, you get to ask the questions. And, and we have gone again now nine times answering yeah. every single question so thank you to everybody for your support we really uh, really appreciate it yes thank you all right let's talk about uh leo tolstoy's the death of ivan illich a novella or a short story it's not too long actually strongly recommend that you read it if you haven't yet um he wrote it uh, a few years after he completed Anna Karenina. And around the same time as he did this memoir called Confession, which in fact, I often, I give a big chunk of that to my intro to ethics class. And it's great. Have you read that? No. We could do an episode on that. Holy shit. It's um, like, is it about his conversion? It's about his like crisis of meaning. Science and philosophy can't help. And he really says he thought of taking his own life because the the reality of death stripped like possible justification for any kind of life right out from under him. And in the end, it does kind of come around to some sort of faith. It's a defense of faith. The precise kind of faith that he's recommending and whether that fixes the problem is definitely worth talking about. But, it, the, you know, he, he's he's obsessed with these and War and Peace and Inner Karenina. Like, he's obsessed with these kinds of questions, Tolstoy, and he writes about them so, kind of, I don't know, unflinchingly that yeah. it's just... Very uh, raw. Just very raw. 
yeah, without a lot of the flourishes that he did in those two like amazing novels too. This just goes right to the core right. of the issue. Right. I never read an Anna Karenina. I don't think. That's so great. Yeah. Um, we could do a whole thing on that or War and Peace. I would love to do both of them. I mean, it would. I don't know when that would happen because <laughs> yeah. of our stupid academic job. Stupid. <laughs> this is a story about a, a man who's just a pretty average guy. He's a judge in the Russian, you know, in the high levels of the Russian courts at the time. He's not a bad person, not a particularly good person. He's vain. He kind of sucks up to the upper classes. And he, he gets a disease that originally comes after he just hits his the side of his body on a coffee table or some sort of table that as he was redecorating very proudly his <laughs> bourgeois house, the, uh, he bumped into it and that ultimately leads to his death. But really it's about, and I read somebody saying something like this, just the basic observation that we're all on death row, yeah. right? <laughs> you know, we are all in the same position as even Ilyich and Tolstoy takes great pains in how he structures it and how he talks about it to sort of make it seem like, you know, he comes to feel that he's accused. We also start to feel accused. Like yeah. we're being like this, this story is an accusation about our lives to some degree. And like I said, in the opening, it's just, you know, once it picks up that momentum, it's relentless and takes you right to the very end with possibly, I don't know, uh, a disappointing ending? I don't know. Well, we, we we can talk about that. But yeah, what did you think of the death? When was the first time you read it? And and what did you, what do you think overall? I must have read it in grad school, um, either late college or early grad school is my guess. Um, it was long enough ago that that. Um, but it never left me, man. Like I never. This is not one of those stories that I was like struggling to recall. Um, yeah. Uh, because it certainly made its uh, it's had an emotional impact on me back then. A different one now, but I I think it's one of the greatest stories I've ever read. I love it. Yeah. Like I yeah. I you know I'm not I'm well versed in the ways of of literature. I'm not. <laughs> You're just a caveman. I'm just a caveman. It's not like the denominator of short stories I've read is fairly small compared to a lot of people, but. I can't imagine um, a story being more relevant to every human being <laughs> who yeah. has ever lived. Um, yeah. You said you were, uh, I was right to be worried about you. In yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. So the first time I read this, I remember feeling so anxious and so uncomfortable because it really is the story of his slow descent into, into death. All of the things that I know that I would be thinking, like, yeah. no, this can't be. What, I'm just going to alive and then dead? Right. Like, for no reason? Can't, for no reason? That can't be right. And like the physical changes that come along with death, like the visceral feeling that you are slipping away, the reaction that people would have to his emaciated body, the lies that people were telling him that he, uh, no, no, there's totally hope. Um the pain that he was in, the clear lack of dignity that in the manner with which both he is dealing with his own death and others are allowing him to have, his friends 
clearly just moving on, right? Like one one of the opening lines is, "You see, he's dead, and I'm not." Right? Let's go play yeah. cards, kind of thing. Um, well, yeah. And when we talk in detail, I want to talk about the choice to start out with yeah, that. Yeah, um, yeah. It's almost like you have a little preface um, right. that takes place after his death from the perspective of one of his quote unquote friends. And then you get to his story, but before, yeah. but you start with him being in the coffin and people at his yeah. funeral and it's told, and, and we never see this person's perspective again, but it's told from the perspective of Piotr Ivanovich, who is, you know, I think we're meant to think maybe the next Ivan Ilyich, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Cause he, he's having the same kind of rea- reaction to this that Ivan Ilyich would have had if he himself wasn't the person yeah. that, uh, um, that was dying. Yeah. All that stuff. When I originally read it had me in sweats, like, yeah. like, uh, genuinely like panicky this time when I read it, um, I found it as uncomfortable and as hard hitting, but I just have a little more experience with death and with life. And I recently actually, you know, I don't remember if I mentioned it, but my, my uncle whom I love dearly passed away and I sat with him through many days in hospice as he was dying and heard the death rattles and, and saw it all happen. And that could have meant that it would be even more distressing to me, but there was a, a certain peace that I had to have in dealing with his death. So, so it wasn't as distressing, but I, I was worried even going into reading it. Like, am I going to be having a panic attack? <laughs> I mean, you know, as somebody who I think I'm on the pretty far to the not scared of death side of the spectrum, but there was something about this that really cuts to something that I do care about, which is like, are, are we sure we're living yeah. like a, a, a meaningful enough life so that if, if something like this happens, which it could absolutely yeah. happen, are, are we going to have uh, a similar kind of experience? He's so good with the details and the description of, of him first, you know, having the issue and then going to doctors and the way the doctors are interacting with, with him. Um, I mean, it, it relates to the lack of dignity, the sort of the, the, them treating you as something, you know, that's not another human being. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And my wife, uh, we had this experience when she was going through uh, cancer treatments, which so far has things are looking great at this point. But at the time, it was really something that I don't know, like it, it was it colored the experience in a just really distressing way. Um, And you knew that there was nothing you can do. And you knew that they probably have their reasons for talking to you like this, but it was, you know, it made you feel the opposite of comforted, supported, taken care of. And, and, you know, we're freaking Houston. Like this is the best place to go through those kinds of treatments. You know, one of the three or four best places in the whole world. Um, So I can only imagine it's much worse in other areas, but there was, he captured the flavor of those interactions in a way that I was just so shocked by. It just brought me back immediately to like three years ago or whenever, however long it was that we went through this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's that, that, and then there's the, I don't know, the stuff about his life. Um, 
Yeah, which we should go through then because yeah. um, you you described a little bit of it, but Tolstoy goes to great lengths, I thought, to portray his life not as that of a secretly bad man, right? Which mm-hmm. which he could have done, right? It could have been that the decision is, well, he was he was actually um, deceptive and selfish, and and that's not at all what you get from this. You get a just a normal person who is looking to, of course, get um, promoted at work. But like by doing good work, you know, he was very proud of his uh, unbiased decisions. He took the work seriously. He was He enjoyed the power trip of it, but he he didn't abuse the power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the feeling of it all is that he is doing the things that are expected of him to do that society thinks are good. At this age, you enter the workforce, you know, you get your education, you enter the workforce. After a while, you maybe get promoted enough, you want to have a family. Yeah, that's a good thing. And it is, right? It's, it's In like, fact, why not get married, he said to yeah. himself. <laughs> and so he gets married, he has kids. That's what I'm supposed to do, right? That's that's the yeah. that's uh, um, and so he, he he is a little superficial, I would yeah. say, as a as a person. Like his vanity and kind of superficiality, he really is just trying to live. And there's a lot of people like this, including some people that I like, but they just want to live a pleasant life. Yeah, you know, and he's not a Rus- Russian aristocracy. He's definitely like the bourgeois Russian uh, class, yeah. which, which so he has to work for a living, unlike uh, the aristocracy. You right. know, like we he has to this, have jobs. This he has to like eighty yeah. six um, that that era of Russia. Yeah, um, a, yeah, uh, late eighteen hundreds in Russia. So, um, so you know, like he, 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 you know, he has his wife. He doesn't seem like he treats her that well, but she also doesn't seem like she treats him that well. He yeah. doesn't seem overly close to his kids, but he is, seems like a dutiful father in, yeah. in as much as like the expectations w- being what they were during that time period. It's interesting. Know? Yeah, if I if yeah. like I were going to write a tale of my dying. Um, my kids would play a more prominent role. <laughs> um, yes. so. and what they call the son, I think, you know, intentionally, the schoolboy. <laughs> schoolboy, uh. <laughs> that's right. Um, yeah, you know, and some of the stuff that he does, like he's doing it ostensibly for the sake of his family. Like he really is excited to get that promotion. You know, he sort of takes a risk and goes to to um, St. Petersburg and and finds out that his friend has been promoted and his friend gets him a promotion. So he's really excited to prepare the way for his family to come because family is staying at the vacation home with his in-laws. And, uh, he, you know, he goes to great lengths to decorate the apartment. And, um, there is a phrase in there, uh, sorry, a, a description in there that's so apt, um, just about many people I know, which is that they, they bought and decorated the place as people who aren't rich but like to think they're rich would. So this means they all kind of look the same, yeah. um, which is, yeah, it's, we all know people like that. Just spend a little too much uh, on on some nice things. Be a little wouldn't. too proud of like your kitchen island. And- <laughs> exactly, the granite, <laughs> the granite yeah. countertop. And, and, um, and, and, you know, and is happy because he, you know, he downplays, uh, to his family, like, oh, the place is okay, because he really just wants to surprise them with a happiness when they get to the apartment and, and wants to see the, their faces of, like, delight that he's actually gotten them something that's even better. 
One thing about Tolstoy that is true also in Anna Karenina and in War and Peace, and like it doesn't matter if it's eight, late 18th century kind of Russian professional life or like the Napoleonic Wars or like, you know, being a landowner with a lot of serfs. Like you feel like you can relate to all of it. Yeah. You know, like Tolstoy is so good at capturing the kind of universal human qualities and the character. Yeah. Uh, right. And it's like, it, it just, it stuns me how much you can relate to his characters and their and their struggles and their questions and their relationships. He can get at that better than I think any other author can. And, he, and, and this is, I would say, even in some sense, like because he's so it's so kind of tunnel visioned this story. Like, I think you yeah. even get a little less of that in this story than you would get in some of his other stuff, but you still get so much of it, you know? And I felt like I know these people. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess there's though, a reason that Ikiru was loosely based on, on this, right? That was, I was thinking of yeah. that. Um, can we talk about the opening yeah, first yeah, yeah. and like what that does? So you, you get from the open, just, I guess, I don't know, the first like 10% of it or something is just the story of his funeral. And you see that he didn't have people who, who loved him essentially the the guy the perspective of the person you're getting is somebody who's a colleague of his that feels obligated to go and the whole time wishes that he could go to play cards with his friend schwartz and and what's i I just wanted to read this one quote at one point he hears he talks to the wife and he hears about the three days uh last three days of his life where it was just all suffering and then death and he says why that could come for me too right now any minute he thought and he was momentarily afraid but at once he did not know how himself the usual thought came to his aid that this had happened to Ivan Ilyich and not to him and that should and could not happen to him and that in thinking so he had succumbed to a gloomy mood which ought not to be done as was obvious from schwartz's face and schwartz is just this good natured genial guy who's like i'm getting out of here to go play cards <laughs> and he and um and i think like that's like i think tolstoy is saying you're probably thinking that too oh this is just a character or this this can't happen <laughs> to me and so we're really getting kind of a lot of readers perspectives when we get it from Pyotr yeah. ivanovich and and, yeah, uh, he says, apart from the reflections this death called upon in each of them about the transfers and possible changes at work that might result from it, the very fact of the death of a close acquaintance called up in all those who heard of it, as always, a feeling of joy that it was not he who was dead, that it was he who was dead and not I. And then he quotes, you see, he's dead and I'm not, each of them thought or felt. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, and I love the that he takes the time to walk us through the deep surprise that Ivan has to have that no this is actually happening to him yeah right right and that's I think because he was Piotr Ivanovich before it's like yeah. this is the thing that happens to other people it doesn't happen to me and it, even it though is, we all know that it happens to us at some point sooner yeah. or later but it's it's there's it's just like you know it and you don't know it yeah. at the same time you are so protected you know, it is the denial of death, right? It's so, it's so, our minds are so protected to not dwell on the fact that we're going to die that it does seem to catch people by surprise in a weird way, which is like, you know, everybody who has ever lived has gone through death, right? Like, yeah. it's just like a weird, weird, weird thing. Like, uh, yeah. Um, and it's interesting that he's a judge in his 
that's his profession and it's his job to like uh, issue judgments about the accused. But then in the story, you know, what he comes to realize is that he, like all of us, are the accused with yeah. this final sentence hanging over our head that we really can't escape. And that, you know, I think is a, is a nice irony that will com- that comes back in all sorts of different ways during yeah. the during the story. Yeah, the banality or the normalcy of his existence, I think, is was extra meaningful to me this time around because, again, it's not as if he was doing anything wrong. Like he wasn't a dishonest judge. He was, as you said, probably a dutiful uh, father. He had problems with his wife, but you know these the kinds of problems <laughs> that they had. Us? Yeah, who among us cast the first stone? Um, <laughs> Right, they seem just like normal, sort of like, you know, you're married to somebody for 20, 30 years, you're going to have moments, long periods in which you're not getting along, and then he calls them islands of, of, of uh, I take it fucking, um, is what he was referring yes. to, like a little island. <laughs> and so when he is having to come to terms with his death, but really with his life, right, is, is what he's having yeah. to come to terms with, um, it is a bit surprising that he starts feeling this this question of like, did I live my life right? Yeah, like is, on paper, some, is it my fault? Like yeah, he starts it, asking, is it my fault? And then he's like, no, it can't be because I've lived like as like I'm supposed to live. Right. Like, oh, wait a minute, have I not? So is that the, even possible? So one central question to me was, I think this at the heart of at least one theme that resonates with me on paper his life was right. There was nothing yep. wrong with it. So what was he regretting? Yeah, I think that's the central question of the story yeah. because he he is trying to, as we all are to some degree, make his life more pleasant, you know, yeah. as pleasant as possible because, you know, you might think, well, we only go around once. There's no reason to be unhappy all the time. Right. So he set up his life to uh, kind of maximize his own degree of pleasure. I think if you wanted to say something bad about him, it's that it doesn't feel like he ever had like a really close friend that he depended on and that depended on him or, you know, that his relationship with his wife, it's not like it started out and they were each other's soulmates and then they kind of drift drifted apart or they just got kind of annoyed with each other as you tend to do over 25 years or whatever. And, and same with the kids, like it feels like he never had like the, the kind of depth of connection in his relationships that I think it's fair to say a lot of like I, I, that a lot of people do have. And so he was unusual, maybe in the superficiality of his connections with other people. Yeah. It sounds to me like most people in his society were like that. It doesn't sound Mm -hmm. like as if he was uh, like an outlier in that way. Um, But he's having a realization and it, it feels like it is, some realization about, again, a word that is always problematic to me, but authenticity, like about whether he lived his life authentically. Yeah. And what that it would even mean. When that, because it's not, because he doesn't express, you know, he's not like uh, Schindler taking off his jewelry and saying like, I could have saved one more person with, you know, there's no clear concrete thing that he's saying, like, if only I had done this. Right. He, he just sort of comes to the realization that this wasn't the sort of life that he should have lived. 
Yeah, but it, and, and and it's interesting. One way to f- frame that is he didn't live authentically, but you never got the sense that there was some real Ivan Ilyich essence that he kind of at one point in his <laughs> right. life was aware of, but then chose to do the the more kind of oh, I have to fulfill these roles and these expectations because that's what society uh, expects, and I want to move into the classes. So I'm just going to leave my you know the, I wanted to be a, a dancer or a painter or <laughs> right. a great lover or something. Like it's it's not nothing in the story <laughs> a makes lover. it a great lover. Uh, <laughs> it just doesn't feel like. He like he kind of did the things that like you know as as they keep saying it was Camille Faux like what's I was about expected? to say Camille Faux yeah. Yeah. yeah and that's that's I think what he's condemning himself for is yep. that he did everything that was expected of him and he in some sense he was authentic to his superficial self he just never tried to like find out who he was at any in any kind of deep way yeah right it's like he never tried to find out what what is the alternative to doing. Comme il faut. Like, yeah. like, what is the etern- alternative to doing what is expected of you in life? And I don't know yeah. that he has an answer, but he certainly rejects the way that he lived his life. Um, and and yes, you're right. I'd- maybe if he had had deeper relationships, you know, if he had formed more bonds, um, I don't even know if he knows that that's what would have helped his life. You know, as far as I know, like, these are just how friends are. Like, of course, you know, these assholes are probably going to be wanting to go play bridge. Um, as soon as the funeral is over, you know, like <laughs> there's this great, uh, where he's talking about the, like the problems with, uh, his wife. And he says there were islands they would land on temporarily, but then they would put it, that's the fuck islands, but then they would put it, but then they would put out again to the sea of concealed enmity that expressed itself in estrangement from each other. This estrangement yeah. might have upset Ivan Ilyich if he had considered that it ought not to be so. But by now he took this situation not only as normal, but as the goal of his activity in the family. His goal consisted in freeing himself more and more from these unpleasant pleasantnesses and in giving them a character of harmlessness and decency and he achieved it by spending less and less time with his family and when he was forced to do so he tried to secure his position by the presence of outsiders which again like i know people like this oh my god i was i was thinking the same exact thing people who are spending more and more time at work because they can't stand to be at home and when they're with their family they always have other people around yeah they always like take vacations with other people and stuff (laughs) like that i definitely that, that that struck a, again like he 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 knows people Tolstoy oh and God, I think yeah. like but but the key line there is if he, his estrangement for from his wife might have upset Ivan Ilyich if he had considered that it ought not to be so but he just thought this is how like you were just saying this is just how marriages are like this yeah. is how it works this is how life works you're supposed to like figure out a way to kind of minimize the unpleasantness and go on uh, enjoyment of uh, you know, your days. Right. And that, that attitude of, of minimizing unpleasantness clearly leaves things unresolved. Um, uh, yeah. In that same vein I have here highlighted as his wife became more irritable and demanding, Ivan Ilyich transferred the center of gravity of his life to his work became more ambitious than he had before. Very soon, not more than a year after his marriage, Ivan Ilyich understood that marital life while offering certain conveniences was essentially a very complex and difficult affair, difficult affair with regard to which in order to fulfill one's duty, that is to lead a decent life approved of by society, one had to work out a certain attitude as one did to one's work. So it's like, uh, all right, I guess like I didn't know marriage would have these problems, but let's do whatever we can to minimize. 
the, the, the trouble. And, and I guess there, that complacency that of, of not saying like, okay, what's actually wrong with my relationship? And maybe even the sort of like moving from promotion to promotion rather than flourishing in one place, um, maybe is along the same theme. But and, no, ask, and asking what I really like, do I do I like the like do I think yeah. this job is important and meaningful in some way rather than no this is a great job everybody seems to admire the fact that I have it and it allows us to have important influential people over and get nice furniture yeah yeah and society deems it important so it must be yeah right like right. I am valued by society I'm a damn good judge you know and that's an important thing to be um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. I think you're right. Like the the crime is, you know, the, the kind of existential crime that he's guilty of is just not ever questioning the expectations and norms and of, you know, how things ought to be. And, it, you know, just kind of taking it all at face value. Well, I guess this is just how life is. Um, this is how marriages are. This is how work is. This is how life is without ever trying to dig deep deeper and really confront the shallowness, the kind of uh, insignificance of all of it, you know? Yeah. And the tragedy of intertwining the process of death with the process of this moral realization is an interesting one. It's like, yeah, you know, throughout, I'm just amazed. It feels like Tolstoy had to have died in order to be able to write this. Like, how did he do this? (laughs) I I totally agree. He feels like, uh, you know, and I've never had a mortal illness, but it feels like these are the thoughts that I'm going to have. Like, how does he know? Right, It's the same thing in Anna Karenina. Like, he tells, like, like part of a chapter from the perspective of a dog, and it's like, he must have been a dog. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. Today's new sponsor, when we're really happy to have them, is 80,000 hours. You have 80,000 hours in your career. That's 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year. Uh, (laughs) For 40 years. Uh, That's, uh, well, that would be good because. You know, then I st- we still have some time left. That's a <laughs> lot of time, and it means that your career is probably your biggest opportunity to make a positive impact on the world. But career planning can be really overwhelming, especially if you care about making a positive difference. So how do you know what actually matters when it comes to having a high-impact and fulfilling career, one that you're also living for others and not just yourself? I actually really think this is a great idea. I'm constantly talking to grad students who we've talked about before are thinking about careers outside of academia, but because they're like actually good people, they want to do something that will make a difference. And there really isn't an easy way to sort job ads by quote unquote things that make a difference. But that's what 80,000 hours is for. They're a nonprofit that aims to help people have a positive impact with their career. 80,000 hours provides free research and support to help you find a career tackling one of the world's most pressing problems. The key here is free. Like this is a service. Yeah. It's a <laughs> nonprofit transition specialist from the opening yeah. segment. Yeah, uh, these are these are good data nerds, the kind that I like, um, who are basically dedicating their time to helping change the world positively by helping you find a job. It's basically give well for jobs, right? Exactly. Like, exactly. So if you're starting out with your career and not sure what to do. 
looking to make a change to your direction mid-career, or even just want to help solve pressing global problems from your current job, 80,000 Hours can help. Join their free newsletter. They'll send you an in-depth guide that helps you learn about what makes for a high-impact career. It'll help you get new ideas for impactful paths, and it'll help you make a new plan based on what you've learned and put it into action. 80,000 Hours hosts a job board with nearly 1,000 currently open high-impact career opportunities, or if you've got some ideas already, they offer free one-on-one advice to help you switch paths. So, uh, yeah, join their newsletter. And, and if you want to start planning a career that works on one of the world's most pressing problems, sign up now at 80,000hours.org slash wizards. That's 80,000 hours, the number 80,000 hours.org slash wizards. Thank you to... Uh, 80,000 hours for sponsoring this episode. Um, like just, I'm just going to read some little descriptions of his, his work life. So he says, um, there's this part where he's like, takes very seriously that his job is about uh, official relationships with people and that he doesn't mix his human relationships with the official relationships. Um, and he had mastered this practice of separating the two, um, said in the highest degree and through long practice and talent had developed to such a degree that like a virtuoso, he sometimes allowed himself as if jokingly to mix human and official relations. He allowed himself that because he felt himself always capable of separating the official when he needed to and of discarding the human. Um, and then, and this then, will come back to haunt him when he's on the other side. Of that, <laughs> right. Exactly. With the doctors. Yeah. Right. For even Ilyich, this business went not only easily, pleasantly, and decently, but even with virtuosity. During recesses, he smoked, drank tea, conversed a little bit about politics, a little about general matters, a little about cards, and most of all about promotions. And weary, but with the feeling of a virtuoso who has given a perfect performance of his part as one of the first violins in the orchestra, he returned home. Yeah, um, he's playing a part. He yeah. is like running lines, you know, like he's just doing the what is expected to him, uh, like not just in his work, not just in his home life, you know, like based on like what society says husbands and uh, fathers should do. He's just like uh, he's he's playing out the string, you yeah. know, in every way, you know, like he has his own little uniqueness and his own talents and his own flaws, but he really is just like, he's acting the part, like he's, he's acting a part and and it's not, and that's where I think the, he he doesn't have an authentic self. He has a part and he's playing and he's, it's like an actor that all they did was act, you know? Yeah. Right. And the words were written by someone else, like by society. Yeah. So at the height of his like professional success and, and and domestic success when they've redone the home to make it look like all these other people's homes that are trying to make it look right. like it's like a rich. McMansion, you know, it's like the equivalent of a yep. modern McMansion. Yeah. Totally, exactly <laughs> that. You know, like right then it's just this little remark that same evening over tea when his wife Praskovia Fyodorovna asked him among other things how he had fallen. He laughed and acted out how he had gone flying, frightened the upholsterer. It's not for nothing I'm a gymnast. Another man might have been badly hurt, but I just got a slight <laughs> knock here. Hurts when you touch it, but it's already going away. A simple bruise and then just the way the description of how that progresses is oh, oh, it's like you said like how how does how did he know uh, 
at this point, it is kind of merciless on the way it just picks up in the story. Just and you know the, the finish line. It's him dying. Yeah. And it just takes you there just with this kind of single mindedness that's chilling. It's really chilling. It, yeah. You're you're pointing out about the opening um Piotr being just like sort of dismissive, good thing it's not me. It really does bring us full circle in this way where it's like you could just see that just happening constantly, this little cycle. The yep. person who's dying is like, no, you guys, like dying sucks. Like this is the end. Have you ever thought about it? Of course. But then you put it away and then it's your turn. And then like yep. the next person, like you could you could see this as an eternal loop of a, yep. of a 100%, book. 100%. You know? Like a um, Mobius strip yeah. of just people doing this and Piotr is next. And, you know, and of course we're, uh, it's the same exactly. thing is true with us, you know, and that's what this story conveys, you know, Ellen, this is the thing I didn't get about it the first time. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, I've said a million times on this podcast and to you that this is one of my favorite parts about The Sopranos is that everybody acts appropriately shocked when somebody else dies, whether it's in the mm-hmm. first season when the, uh, what's his name, dies of cancer or yeah. any other reason. And then, boom, it's like they're right back to doing the same shit. It's like they yeah. were given this moment. They're given this moment to really think about what life is. But it's the human condition is to not dwell on that. Right? To not confront it. And to Tolstoy not has really think given, about what it means. Yeah. You know? And Tolstoy, through the structure of this story, is dragging it out. He's saying, mm-hmm. Yeah, this isn't just about a guy who died. I'm going to make you because this is the plot of my story, I'm going to make you think about dying for all of these, whatever, 30 pages of story and uh, all of the things that he's thinking. Almost, I feel like it's a service to humanity that he's doing, <laughs> yeah. right? He's Ex- Unless we act like I think I certainly did it when I first read it, like Piotr, you yeah. know, the, yeah. like, like the friend, like, because that's what I did before. And who knows, maybe I'm, I'm not thinking that now. <laughs> yeah, but well, it's hard to know what we're it, supposed to do with that thought. It's very hard. That's the issue. Yeah. <laughs> and also, I think I like what you said a, a little bit earlier that to confront these existential questions while also undergoing the process of dying. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's the only way to really come face to face with it, but there's something just the juxtaposition of what you have to face as you slowly, as your disease just gets worse and worse. And it really reminded me of cancer and I've lost, uh, you know, I lost my mother to cancer. I lost like it is and and where, and it's always like people don't exactly know what's wrong with you at first. And there are times where you think it's going to get better and then it doesn't, or it's going to get worse. And then you get a little bit of like a reprieve or hope, but it's, and the doctors, (laughs) like the stuff of them talking to the doctor. So I'll just read this one quote. Such and the doctor said, such and such indicates that there is such and such inside you. But if that (laughs) is not confirmed by the analysis of this and that, then it must be assumed that you have such and such. If we presume such and such then, and so on. For Ivan Ilyich, only one question mattered. Was his condition dangerous or not? But the doctor ignored this inappropriate question. From the doctor's point of view, it was an idle question not to be discussed. There existed only the weighing of probabilities. This is so like, I 
just got immediately transported back to talking with doctors about my wife's uh, condition. A floating kidney, chronic cataract, or appendicitis. And then he says, this kind of sums it all up. It was not a question of Ivan Ilyich's life, but an argument between a floating kidney and the appendix. It was (laughs) just like, just weighing these probabilities. And And then the kicker is, he says... All this was just exactly what Ivan Ilyich himself had performed as brilliantly a thousand times over the accused. The doctors performed his summing up just as brilliantly and triumphantly, even merrily glanced over his spectacles at the accused. From the doctors summing up, Ivan Ilyich drew the conclusion that things were bad and that for him, the doctor, and for anyone else you like, it was all the same. But for him, things were bad. And of course, doctors have to act like this because if they... If they fully were invested in every one of their patients as like individual human beings, like they probably couldn't get through their own lives. Right. And, you know, also who wants to deal with that mess of telling someone, no, fuck, come come here, look at this tumor. Oh, shit, man. (laughs) Right. Even close friends and families like get, and, and this story conveys that brilliantly too, is how other people behave around you when they're sick. And partly it's your just existence now is making them face facts about their own condition that they'd rather not face. But also it sucks to be around as it's really hard. It's hard emotionally. And there's so many ways that you would rather not deal with, you know, even though they're like your, your fucking parents, you know? So it's like, even when the relationships are strong and good, you still get this feeling as a sick person that how ah, these people, they don't want to deal with this, you know, and yeah, they and you, kind of think at some level it's your fault, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> and and you do see a shift in him from resenting everybody around him, knowing that they don't want to be there, and sort of being like, just don't fucking be here then, to then feeling more at the very end something like compassion for them like not wanting yeah. them to be there for their the sake end. yeah the yeah. very end um and but yeah all of the shame i guess is it's hard yeah. to know what that emotion is but like your body is changing right there's a very poignant scene where his um his brother-in-law sees him or somebody for the yeah. first time in a while and he like about to he's about to like audibly gasp covers his mouth and and he because Ivan Ilyich didn't realize how much he had changed physically and so he's like is it that bad have I changed that much he looks at he picks up an old photo of himself and looks at himself in the mirror and realizes yeah that's bad because Um, it's gradual you know like that's the thing is if you if you haven't seen like a person who's who has a disease like a uh, a disease that will end up taking their life and you but but like the people with them are more used to it but then when you see the person for the first time if you haven't seen them in like six months or a year it's shocking yeah you know yeah you know when you were i I think i I think it was you who i was talking to when my when my uncle was was uh, dying in hospice and and you said something yeah. about hospice being amazing um, oh god yeah yeah and it really is as i was reading this i was thinking to myself how amazing those people were because they are people who are that's what they do they help people transition from life to death that's their job and they allow people this dignity they give family members the ability to talk about it they 
inform them about what's going to happen. This is going to happen. Uh, you know, you're going to, he's within the next 24 hours, maybe he'll start death. The, the death rattles will come. We're giving him uh, painkillers for this. All that kind of stuff that is. That you didn't get I, you to that did. point. For It's like a freaking, you go from like being the scum of the earth yeah. to like being just like princes and, and like yeah. kings and queens. You go from being a just problem. Just like almost yeah. overnight. Yeah, yeah, you go from being a problem to just being, and the people there who are taking care of you, it's like they're like saints. It's they're, like they're yeah. dying for everyone else's sins. They're yeah. freaking, they're, they're doing the most disgusting work possible in some ways, you know, or like what most people, because like people don't want to be around old people yeah. and dying people because it freaks everybody out at a, the visceral level and they just do it and they seem like they want to do it. Like exactly. it's, it's, to, it's, it's saint, it feels saintly. Absolutely. And it, it is like, um, now I, now I'm blanking on his name cause I was looking up how to pronounce it. Um, his his servant, uh, Gerasim, Gerasim, yeah, um, who, that totally reminded me of like a hospice person. Yeah, who who is not outwardly put off or disgusted. You know, he has to clean his shit yeah. basically, and um, and sits there and lifts his legs to give him more comfort. In it, it was almost like a Christ-like figure, like bearing bearing the burden for even Ilyich as he's dying. Um, taking on that burden just to give him some relief from from the pain and not being shocked himself. Like it's, it must be a terrible feeling to see your children walk in and be like, <gasps> like, you know, and then talking. He hears people talking about him. behind. They won't say it to him. So he's he starts getting really, really upset about how much he's being lied to, that nobody seems to want to tell him he's dying. And he very gradually comes to realize it himself. Like he, there's this, I think, fairly famous passage where he says, where he first learned the syllogism, Caius yeah. is a man, men are mortal, therefore Caius is mortal, had seemed to him all his life to be correct only in relation to Caius, <laughs> exactly. but by no means to himself. For the man Caius, man in general, it was perfectly correct. But yeah. he was not Caius and not man in general. He had always been quite, quite separate from all other beings. And I'm telling you, I feel this yeah, too. Like, absolutely. It's so on point. Um, yeah. Was it... Was it Caius, the, the smell of the striped leather ball that Vanya, his childhood name, had loved yeah. so much? Was it Caius who had kissed his mother's hand like that? And was it for Caius that the silk folds of his mother's dress had rustled like that? Was it he who had mutinied against bad food in law school? Was it Caius who had been in love like that? Was it Caius who could conduct a court session like that? And Caius is indeed mortal, and it's right that he die. But for me, Vanya, Ivan Ilyich, with all my feelings and thoughts, for me it's another matter, and it cannot be that I should die. It would be too terrible. God, yes, and I think. God. That's so good because it also shows like what being when you are when you have some sort of disease or some sort of condition and you're seeing doctors who are viewing you more as man in general for the yeah. first time, you know, human beings in general, not the particular people that you are with your particular thoughts, your particular relationships, your particular feelings. And, and it's like shocking. It's like, wait a minute. Yeah. I'm not those people. I'm not the kind of person that just gets cancer and yeah. dies. Like yeah. that's, that's man in general. I, I'm like, I'm me. Like I'm, this is, I have to be the main character of my story, right? Like it's not yeah. main character is used in this disparaging egotistical way nowadays, but like, 
but we are the main characters and we're complex and we have thoughts and hopes and dreams right. and desires and we're not statistics and yeah. we're not probabilities and in my mind i've always existed right yeah. so to the thought of me not existing is like well does that mean then the rest of the world will crumble like it can't be how could i not be here like it's crazy um, yeah, and and I think this is like you know a lot of the last later parts of the story is him really slowly coming to terms with this. Yeah, you know he's actually going to die, and people aren't being honest about it because yeah. you know like we don't talk about that. You yeah. don't, and you certainly don't want to talk about it with somebody who's facing that. You know yeah. the fact that you're going to die, and I think the sort of it's understandable, but the dishonesty of that starts even though he would have a hundred percent been doing the exact same thing that they're doing. Yeah. Like it starts to, he, uh, before he gets to the point where he feels compassion for them, he feels like a hatred for them. Yeah. Like he feels a real hatred for his wife. How, and it, again, like him, she doesn't seem like she's being especially good, but she all, definitely doesn't feel like she's being especially bad. Right. Prob- it's very, Tolstoy makes it very clear that if we, if the story were told from her perspective, she would be the one who led yeah. the normal life and he was the grumpy one. And like, you know, yeah. um, yeah. Exactly. Um, and it really also hit home that like toward the end, most of his memories were about his childhood. Um, the good ones. Yeah. yeah. All the good memories were just about, uh, from childhood. And, you know, it's really sad that people say that people often call for their mother when they're dying, you know, mm. is that, yeah. it's, um, but he said there is a passage here where he's, he, he waited until Gerasim, his, his servant, um, went to the next room and then he stopped holding himself back and wept like a child. He wept over his helplessness, over his terrible loneliness, over the cruelty of people, over the cruelty of God, over the absence of God. Why have you done all this? Why have you brought me here? Why, why do you torment me so terribly? Um, in, yeah. it's, it's like, again, like you said, like we've said multiple times, like it happens to everybody, but that doesn't prevent anybody from saying, why me? <laughs> yeah. And, and I think there is something at the end, which we should talk about, where he has to first accept that he's dying, but he also has to accept that, there, that he hasn't really left as he ought to live, right? Yeah. Like yeah. He, and the way he gets there is, as you said, right? He starts to think he has a conversation with his soul, right? Yeah. To live, he says, as I've lived before, nicely, pleasantly. And you lived before, nicely and pleasantly, ask the voice. And he started going over in his imagination the best moments of his pleasant life. But strange thing, all the best moments of his present life seemed now not at all as they had seemed then. All except for the first memories of childhood. There in childhood, there had been something really pleasant, which one could live with if it came back. Mm -hmm. But the man who had experienced that pleasure was no more. It was as if the memory was about someone else. So he doesn't Ah, identify with the child and his childhood And that's that's the authenticity, like uh, yeah, um, where he is not. He's now just devoid. He's it's been a different person has been created. Yeah, and there is. I mean, this is one of the things when you have a kid, you real you start to get a little bit of vicarious. I see the world through these kind of innocent eyes that is just like you yeah. know, for a trip is just looking forward to it with such uncomplicated kind of joy. Yeah. But then when he starts to get closer to what he does identify with himself, it doesn't doesn't feel pleasant anymore yeah. it feels worthless and often vile he says yeah. you know and it's got he's got a bad he's got a literal bad taste in his mouth from what he's yeah. going through from the disease but he's also he has a very sour feeling about how he's lived his life 
as a as the person that he now takes himself to be that he 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 identifies with yeah and that's a, and and he and he says court is in session court is in session here is that court but i'm not guilty what for he cried out angrily and he started weeping and turning his face to the wall and began to think about the one and the same thing why for what is all this horror yeah yeah and i guess he finds I don't know. Like, how do you interpret the ending and the bright light? And then yeah, that? okay. Before I get there, I want to yeah. read more of that portion that you were reading when he says sure. when he's talking about the memories from his childhood toward his adulthood. It just all goes downhill. It's as if I was steadily going downhill while imagining I was going up, and so it was in public opinion. I was going uphill again in what other people thought, and exactly to that extent, life was slipping away from under me. And now that's it. So die. But what is this? Why? It can't be. Can it be that life is so meaningless and vile? And if it is indeed so vile and meaningless, then why die and die suffering? Something's not right. Maybe I did not live as I should have, would suddenly come into his head. But how not if I did everything one ought to, he would say to himself, and at once drive this sole solution to the whole riddle of life and death away from him as something completely impossible. So still, as it's going, he he's getting closer. He's like iterating on some sort of insight. But it's still taking him uh, time. Um, yeah, exactly. He's like getting closer. It is like these cycles of like, okay, I, I, but every time I get a little closer yeah. to really confronting what it is. And it seems like pain, the more pain he experiences, the more he's able to, to, yeah, yeah. That's uh, very, to start to face, face that, it. That's a very, very sort of like Christian kind of yep. view, you know, the, like the, through the suffering, you get this clarity. Um, I suspect Tolstoy was a Christian, Tandler. <laughs> I think he, yes, he absolutely was. The kind of Christian that he was, I think, changed yeah. in, over the course. And, you know, I think he went through atheistic times, too. You find out in, in confession. But, um, you know, Tolstoy had a very mystical leanings and... Yeah. Uh, you know, got frustrated with the orthodoxy of the Christian church, from what I understand, yeah. uh, the in, in in Russia. But but I think this ha I got very Christian, like s physical suffering yeah. leads to insight and a kind of redemption, I guess. Cleansing, a cleansing. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's sick. You guys are sick. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is once again brought to you by NordVPN, my favorite VPN. It's fast, it's easy, it's reliable. And this ad read is so easy for me to do because there are just clear advantages to having a VPN, a virtual private network. And I think that NordVPN is a great option if you're interested at all. A virtual private network essentially creates a tunnel of in, uh, encryption for your data to flow through, and that provides a few benefits, a few advantages. One, if you're worried at all about your privacy online, say you're using public Wi-Fi, you're in an airport or a coffee shop, and you just want to make sure that your internet surfing is private, a VPN does that. If you just don't want your internet service provider to know what you're doing online, it kind of bothers me that they can see everything that I do if I'm not running a VPN, then it works for that. But also it unlocks the world's content. You can have essentially what the internet was built for, access to the in, all of the information, including entertainment that you might want. So that means that in your home country, you might not have access to some of the programs, movies, TV shows that you'd like to watch. And with one click of the button, 
you can make it seem as if your connection is coming from a different country. That means if you're in the U.S., for instance, you can watch British comedies when they come out and you don't have to wait for them. Uh, but it also means that if you're traveling, for instance, when I travel to other countries, I log on to my HBO or my Netflix and I just do, I'm not able to watch what I want to watch unless I just click on NordVPN and boom, it's like I'm at home. So if you this at all interests you, if you think this is uh, something that you might like, I uh, would encourage you to try out NordVPN and go to nordvpn.com slash VBW and you'll get a two-year plan plus one additional month with a huge discount. It's essentially equivalent to buying a cup of coffee every month, which I think is a small price uh, to pay for both the peace of mind that you get from security and the ability to access the world's content. Once again, that's nordvpn.com slash VBW. Our thanks to NordVPN for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. Um, <laughs> so, so let's get yeah to the end there, because... Uh, the. I suspect we're going to have to talk a while about what the hell went on. Yeah. So his wife says, you know, do you want to take communion? Do you want to make a confession? And at first he says, there's no need. But she starts crying and he says, OK, fine, I'll do it. And the pr priest comes and he feels eased for a moment, but he still says he wants to live. And then his wife comes to kind of congratulate him. And she said the usual words and added, isn't it true that you're feeling better? He said, yes, without looking at her. Her clothes, her figure, the expression of her face, the sound of her voice all told him one thing, not right. All that you've lived and live by is a lie, a deception, concealing life and death from you. And as soon as he thought it, his hatred arose. And together with his hatred, his tormenting physical sufferings, and with his sufferings, the consciousness of near-inevitable destruction. Something new set in, and twisting and shooting and choking his body breath and then he just yells for um, her and everybody else to, to go away so this is three days before his death and right. I don't know if it's a low point because he's had a lot of low points but it's definitely you know um, this is kind of the closing chapter before he just goes into three days of pure physical suffering. Yeah, right. I was going to say this three days, three days of ceaseless howling might be a low point. But oh this yeah. Is I meant to, to, up till now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's like he has this insight, you know, he says not right. All that you've lived and lived by is a lie, a deception, concealing life and death from you. And he had that insight right after his communion with the priest's confession I'm still not quite sure like what he thinks was so wrong. Like like what was it in that moment that that made him think that but everything it, has been a deception. Isn't it been a culmination of just, you know, the 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 weeks up till this point where he's starting to, you know, go back through his memory as we talked about and any part of himself that he identifies with, he doesn't find you know, like those memories to be pleasurable. And it's only when he has the memories of his being a kid that he finds like genuinely pleasant moments. But then that feels like the memories of somebody else, not of him. Yeah. So, so it's like that all, all of that insight congealed in that one, in I, that moment, I guess. Yeah. When the, when the priest comes and it, you know, the one thing the priest also does or what seems to be a trigger is the last three days of just pure suffering, howling. Yeah, definitely. Just that phrase, three days of ceaseless howling, is uh, haunts me. 
Um, but then, so he's full of hatred when he has this insight, which is weird because it's like he's not fully there insightfully. Like he's still angry at the world or something, definitely at his wife. Like, definitely at his they, wife. I don't think they had a very good relationship, Tim. I think she's also like a mirror of him. Like she's living the way yeah. he lived and yeah. he hates himself and so he hates her, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and it says in that next section, when the three-day ceaseless howling begins... Uh, the moment he answered his wife, he realized that he was lost, that there was no return, that the end had come, the final end, and his doubt was still not resolved. It still remained doubt. And it, it seems, I don't know like how you interpret this, but like this, uh, the thrashing around and there's this black sack, like a black hole that's beckoning him. And I take it yeah. that that's death. But he str- he's, at first, he struggles. He doesn't want to, like he says, as one condemned to death struggles in the executioner's hand. And then it says, he felt that his torment lay in being thrust into that black hole and still more in being able to uh, being unable to get into it. What kept him from getting into it was the claim that his had been a good life. The, this justification of his life clutched at him, would not let him move forward, and tormented him most of all. So I think the thing that keeps him pushing death away is because he still wants to cling to the possibility that he led a good life. Yeah. Even though he knows in his heart that he didn't. Yeah. And like the pain, it, it really is, as he mentioned before, it's like more the moral suffering than the, than the physical suffering. He's he, fighting the death. Do you think it's because, right? So he says it wouldn't let him move forward. Do you think like he wants a second chance? Like at this point, he's like, give me that chance to live a better life, like a, the more authentic life. That's what's not allowing him, at least to this point, I think, to die in peace. You know, yeah. I think, yes. And he wants to live. He wants to live right. If he's, you know, what's the... What's the benefit of knowing that you've lived wrong <laughs> yeah. if you're just now going to die and you can't, you have no way to kind of redeem the, the time that you have left? And yet, I don't it's know. Like like, a, it's a pyrrhic moral victory. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's like, oh, Henry or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's actually what, like, what bothers me upon like reading this end is that he would have this realization and, really not be at the point where he can even tell anybody that he had it. Right? No. Like he can't even make the smallest gesture. That's of, right. Uh, right. Uh, aside from, we know his inner thoughts. So he, so he, um, you know, he finally does accept that he is tormenting his family, both probably by the process of dying and fighting the death, but also maybe just in life. And he does, get to this point where he realizes that he must forgive and let go, but nobody else knows. And that's scares me that that's well. And, and he wants to say, forgive me. Like, yeah. you know, like I haven't been a great, uh, I thought I was a good, dutiful husband and father, but I don't think I was. And, but he can't yeah. say it. He says forego, but that the little boy comes and puts, you know, holds his hand. He tells him to take him away. Like this is, the first time he's really thought of other people in a deep yeah. way, you know? And so even if he, even if he's not able to articulate that, he's definitely, he's definitely feeling it. Um, do you want to read the last part of this? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he says, right after he tries to say forgive, but says forego, he says, and, and suddenly it became clear to him that what was tormenting him and would not be resolved was suddenly all resolved at once, on two sides, on ten sides, on all sides. He was sorry for them. 
he had to act so that it was not painful for them, to deliver them and deliver himself from these sufferings. How good and how simple, he thought. And the pain, he asked himself, what's become of it? Where are you, pain? He became attentive. Yes, there it is. Well then, let there be pain. And death, where is it? He sought his old habitual fear of death and could not find it. Where was it? What death? There was no more fear because there was no more death. Instead of death, there was light. So that's it, he suddenly said aloud. What joy. For him, all this happened in an instant, and the significance of that instant never changed. For those present, his agony went on for two more hours. (laughs) It's like a twisted. (laughs) Yeah, at least it was instant for him. Something gurgled in his chest. His emaciated body kept twitching. Then the gurgling and wheezing gradually subsided. It's finished, someone said over him. He heard those words and repeated them in his soul. Death is finished, he said to himself. It is no more. He drew in air, stopped at mid-breath, stretched out, and died. Yeah, and that's it. That's powerful, man. It Uh, is. You know, I have to confess that I was a little disappointed in these last lines when I first read it before I went back to kind of think harder about it. It seemed like, oh, wow, cheap last-minute kind of redemption and now he goes to heaven or something, and the light represents heaven. And I think that's I, – I, I don't think I interpret it that way anymore. But what about you? Like, do you find this to be redemptive in a, and even, you know, almost straightforwardly kind of Christian where because he no, confessed and, and had right. a realization he gets to go to heaven? Even less than before. I, I wasn't – I didn't feel like Tolstoy was trying to give a redemptive story here very well because I think that that he's more aptly describing just physical death and and maybe the, just that you know the death rattles and what your body must mm-hmm. go through. He's, he's not yeah. doesn't gurgling. say much about yeah the gurgling the death rattles which yeah. you know if you've been next to someone dying it's really you know it does last a long time and you know they're going and their body is kind of fighting it. Um, so I I, I think. On this reading, I think that this is actually like a pretty pessimistic take. I, I think that the the one good thing is that he is able to let go. Yeah. And I think that the best he gets is this realization at the very end that none of this matters, maybe. Like all of the concerns that he had that were inauthentic during life don't matter. And all of the concerns that he had in the last few moments that his life was inauthentic and that he should have lived otherwise those kind of don't matter either and he he just gives in to the natural process of dying yeah and what do you see the light as just a kind of relief a relief yeah yeah i I like that yeah Yeah. that's how it made me feel at least and 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 i and it it's still optimistic to me you know um I, i i think it's a nice thought to think that you would have this moment as you're fighting death. Of acceptance. That, of acceptance, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it reminded me a little, as Christian as it all is, with the three days of suffering or whatever. Yeah, um, and and by the way, that it's finished, which is what Jesus says, right, as he dies. It's uh, finished. I didn't know yeah. that. But I also got, it reminded me of, of Buddhist ideas in a couple of different ways, like the idea of like, where's the pain um, and, and what's yeah. become of it? Where are you pain? He, be, he became yeah. attentive. Ah, yes, there it is. Well then, let there be pain. It's like yeah. by detaching from it, detaching, slowly detaching from all these kind of worldly things, he becomes able not to 
it's it's he's still acknowledging them, but they're not a part yeah. of him anymore, and and he can accept it. And it's this just letting go, uh, a, a ceasing of resistance. And a more just natural flow into death that I think yeah. is, reminds me just of how Buddhists want you to live, but also want you to die. Um, right. And right. it does seem like he is able to now view his life from a kind of remove that's that transcends, like you were saying just now, like ordinary concerns. You know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That he used to, that not only used to care about and be overly attached to but they were just him they constituted his whole identity you yeah. know and now he's able to see that none of that matters but it is it's tragic because it took like his <laughs> oh. entire life and like a slow death a like slow a terrible and slow, agonizing yeah. death for him to to finally a also think and have compassion for other people uh in his you know in his family and and actually want to express things to them which he's not able to express but it took that for him to even get to the point where he's he's out he's not as self-centered as he has been throughout the entire stories so um i i think that there is something i must be any kind of spiritual tradition of recognizing that the larger dwarfs your uh you know day yeah you're dropping the, drop in the ocean yeah you know? you're just yeah throughout it 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 really did make me think um that we need to do a better job sort of shepherding the death process and um, yeah. Even the family who, you know, at some point I'm sure they just want him to die. But like the wife is even as unhappy as she's been, she's just like trying to do everything she can. Like yep. the doctor, this medicine, this. this yeah. Get, of, go to this new doctor. She, We're yeah, paying. Take some ivermectin. To yeah, exactly. <laughs> Inject the, the ivermectin in, in his ass or, or have uh, the servant do it. <laughs> he does seem pretty willing to do anything. Um, yeah, and like you know, like I was saying before about being in hospice with my uncle, like those people really seemed to have it down. They've seen so much death that um, they, I don't know, the way that they talked about death as a transition and the way that they explained what would happen, it's just this like weird thing that we just don't talk about that much. It's people like me who fear death so much that we'd rather not have those conversations. Um, or, or people like me who just don't really <laughs> accept that it's going to happen. Right. Yeah. Right. Either way, you're not talking about <laughs> Either it. Either way, you're not talking <laughs> I mean, um, I think this idea of the justification of his life clutched at him, that's such an, uh, a vivid image. This, this claim that he's had a good life is stopping him from that release, from that acceptance, yeah. from that... Uh, and, and once he lets it go... And I'm, and I don't know. Maybe it's something about the boy. Uh, yeah, that's right. Very the, rarely he, named, or, or possibly yeah, never he's, named. He's a terrible father. So, but his little son grabs his hand, and, and, and yeah, that's like the last thing that happens before he. I don't think yeah. he's a terrible father. He's just not. He's just a very removed father. Like uh, by, by my standards, because I'm so yes. awesome, I would I would name my child if that was. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a nice little detail that Tolstoy just all, always calls him the schoolboy. You know, it's told <laughs> school. Third person perspective, but he, you know, kisses his hand and then he has the, you know, the realization 
that he's tormenting them and that he wants he he sh- he doesn't need to just give himself a relief a release but like them a relief let them live their life i got i got i got vibes of the metamorphosis uh, and the ending of there where he's become just you know there it's much more dramatized by the surrealism of it they really just want him to die with that with that apple in the back actually yeah. which is very much like the this disease yeah. now that i think about it right right you know um Another thought I had when reading this is people say, I, I don't know how true this is, but, um, or how much people read into this, but I've heard this claim that when a predator is attacking prey, that they fight it, they fight it, they fight it. But at the very end, like they, the animal just sort of gives in very peacefully. Yeah. Have you heard this before? Like, yeah, I have. You yeah. Know, and you can see it kind of, you know, in the like whatever the gazelle being chased down by the lion, fighting, 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 and until they just sort of they have this peaceful look on on their faces, right. their their throats are getting torn apart. And I've always thought maybe that is it would be nice if that were a part of the whole natural process of dying that we would have this. By the way, have you ever? Um, read or heard of i don't know if we've talked about this before of uh, the the philosopher val val plumwood who mm-hmm. was attacked by a crocodile um and she wrote about it but it's a really interesting essay that she wrote with her as her experience with essentially being the prey for a crocodile who takes her down into these death rolls over and over again to the point where she was just ready to die like she was just she would prefer to die than to survive um but now here i'm reading from her wikipedia um, it says the experience gave Plumwood a glimpse of the world, quote unquote, from the outside, a world that was indifferent to her and would continue without her an unrecognizably bleak order. As my own narrative and the larger story were ripped apart, I glimpsed a shockingly indifferent world in which I had no more significance than any other edible being. The thought this can't be happening to me. I'm a human being. I am more than just food was one component of my terminal incredulity. It was a shocking reduction from a complex human being to a mere piece of meat. Right. Now it's that's like, like that's chaos is mortal. All men are exactly mortal. right, yeah. and and um, the insight is framed more negatively here than the sort of light. But it, you know, there is something to the well. Like we can't. In the end, what was it all? Like in the end, what are we? Uh, we're just these things that are going to die. But the, you know, he says, "What joy." I, it doesn't yeah. sound like she is saying what joy. She definitely didn't have the what joy, probably from the, you know, yeah. being scared shitless. So I'm not sure. Like, I think Tolstoy might mean this more kind of mystically. Positively. Yeah, and positively. Yeah. Well, so here's, and I don't know what uh, this, uh, Val Plumwood would say, but there is still something common to both of those experiences, mm-hmm. which is something we can't live with every single day. We can't constantly be thinking this is all meaningless but rather like i think that the visceral knowledge that at one point it won't matter at all is a good reminder for how to live your life like i and it's not that like dumb kind of like well fuck everything then like nothing matters but rather like as we've said so many times when we talk about our existentialist stuff is like no like what matters is how you spend the time you actually have because it's gonna be ripped away from you yeah you know and that's what's tragic about this is the the realization that he finally comes to is that there is no justification for how he lived he did not live as he ought to have lived as he thought and that you know at least 
I guess, realizing that and not dying as total deception and a lie, you know, like (laughs) he's, he's been afraid to confront it at every level. And finally he confronts it and the confrontation allows for the release. And you're right. I think you could read it both ways, just a kind of just a recognition of our cosmic unimportance uh, and, and the relief that comes with that. But it's a, you know, a kind of bleak relief or something maybe like because he finally feels compassion and finally feels uh, and finally feels a kind of honesty. There's a kind of honesty yeah. with how he's reckoning with himself that That's, that is, a you know, like that, that, that leads to a light of some kind. Yeah. And I want to think that Tolstoy in this, he's really in this visceral way led us through the death of his protagonist in a way that I think makes us feel some measure, as pale as it might be, some measure of the finality of, of existence. And I think, this is why I think this is one of the great, just the great stories. It it gives it gives you a reminder that at some point, not I, I don't take it in a bleak way, it's just true. At some point, wh- what you will have is the last few moments where you assess whether you lived the life that you wanted to have yep. live and then nothing, <laughs> yep. you know, if you yeah. assuming you don't get like hit by a bus, exactly. <laughs> which That's I could true. totally see is something hap- happening to me. I also like to think that in the, maybe, maybe the, the last, like in that Borges story where the, the moment between the bullet leaving the gun and hitting yeah. him, he gets to live like a whole life. Yeah. I, so I, I think when I read it the first time when I was young, I, I don't think I was poised to have any of this kind of insight. I was just scared of dying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I took it. And like I said, uh, I think at the beginning of our conversation, it, I, I've started to feel accused by the story too. And in a sense, I think that's what this story is. It's yeah. like we kind of go through as as you said earlier, kind of the protagonists of our own novels and also the kind of judges of others. Yeah. But but really, we're the accused like everybody else. And there was something about the story that was just telling me, like, are you doing what you ought to be doing right now? Is this And, and are, you, are you asking yourself this question? And it, that aspect of it really, really moved me, really, you know, like, I was like... You know, the, the aspects of my life that I, I think are like if Ivan Ilyich is when I'm doing bullshit, you know, yeah. when, uh, you know, the times <laughs> I spent online, the times I, I don't know, like I, I, I did like really cheesy things. Like I gave Eliza a hug at one point <laughs> while I was reading, reading this. I texted a heart to Jen while she was at work. Like, I did, <laughs> and they're like, like, are you dying? Yeah. <laughs> you know, because we take stuff for granted often, you know, and we live to try to make our lives more pleasant and, and less un- unpleasant as we can manage, uh, we can manage too. And there's the risk when, when you do that, as we are kind of conditioned to do that you're missing out on some really important, deep things uh, yeah. about life. And that's not something you want to really think about yourself get, when you're about to die and it's all over now. Yeah, the way you put it really makes me think that the the Ivan Ivan saying I am not Chaos, it's very easy for me to say I am not Ivan Ilyich. Right. Right? Totally. Uh, yeah. Good all good and well. Good well good good story, Tolstoy, but that's not me. 
And that that would be the exact wrong <laughs> take home message. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, Piotr uh, uh, Ivanovich or whatever, uh, Piotr from the beginning of the story, yeah. he's even Ilyich and he doesn't even know it. And the <laughs> wife right. is also even Ilyich and she doesn't even know it. Fortunately, right. I'm not. That's up. right. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, um, t- what we were saying earlier reminds me of this. It, did you ever see Norm MacDonald tweeted back to Neil deGrasse Tyson? Um, Neil deGrasse in his, of course, annoying, obnoxious way. This was in 2019. He sends out a tweet. <clears throat> the universe is blind to our sorrows and indifferent to our pains. Have a nice day. Yeah. Like, very douchey. Yeah. So <laughs> Norm McDonald replied, Neil, there is a logical flaw in your little aphorism that seems quite telling. Since you and I are part of the universe, then we would also be indifferent and uncaring. Perhaps you forgot, Neil, that we are not superior to the universe, but merely a fraction of it. Nice oh, day indeed. shit. Isn't that sweet? Yeah. Did you see his <laughs> special, by the way? No, not yet. Have you? Yep. It's uh, great. It's so great. Ah, good. I'm so glad that you said that. <laughs> I was a little worried that you were going to say I, 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 I loved it. I really liked it. Yeah. Oh, good. I, I'm kind of amazed by it. So um, we'll, maybe we'll talk about that in an episode. Oh, yeah. I saw that somebody uh, requested it. All right. Any other thoughts about it? I, 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 like, I love this idea of it's just this continuous cycle of people. <laughs> yeah. And also what you were saying about Ivan Illich kind of getting closer to the to the realization, but always pushing away from it. Again, I get this Buddhist kind of cycle vibe where you're you keep being reborn and, and dying, but some but you make a little progress and make a little progress. And yeah. finally maybe you, you come to understand what's important or what's unimportant. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of what the good life is to me. I know yeah. that I can't have all of these realizations at once and I can't just change the way that I live at the drop of a hat. And moreover, I couldn't have in my 20s had the same sort of wisdom, whatever yeah. you want to call it. <clears throat> um, and so to keep moving forward, which is at some point, I, Ivan Ilyich says something about moving forward, to have the luck of being able to keep moving forward and the luck of having a sort of yeah. ability to, to lead a reflecting life. Um, that's, but you have to take advantage of it. You have that to, you, that, that you it, have yeah. that luck, you know, and you have to get out, you know, I think even Illich, he's not a bad guy, but he was a self-centered person. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's the, that's the struggle is to become less self-centered. Well, you know, when I read it, I also uh, texted your wife that I love her. I'm going to text your daughter that. (laughs) Oh, Uh, we've learned our lesson. (laughs) You know what? Like, we have to really think about whether doing this podcast is something we're going to look back on and be like, what the fuck? Oh, my God. I I mean, some some episodes, but but we get to... talk about this like mm-hmm. i i it genuinely is the case that we are lucky enough to have the ability to do this uh and and make time to have conversations like these and reflect like this so i, I hope it it in communicating it to the rest of the world we're adding a little bit to the moving forward yes i i hope so too um however you know, slight the probability. <laughs> and however slow the moving forward is. <laughs> yeah, however slow. 238 cycles down. Uh, <laughs> who knows how many to go. 
All right. Um, well, I hope uh, I hope you do read the story if you haven't yet, and join us next time on Very Bad Wizards.